Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. I'm a board-certified obstetrician gynecologist. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a Catholic. I'm a lot of things. But today on this show, I'm your host for all things women's health. And on this show, we talk about, you know, all things women's health. And we'll always do it from an authentically Christian Catholic perspective. It doesn't matter if it's childbirth to infertility, pregnancy loss to menopause, or uh, homeschooling to personal trainers. If it involves women and their health, it's on the agenda for all things women's health. The topic today, I think, is an incredibly important one, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And joining me is a special friend and someone that many of you will recognize from the very first episode, Amber Todd. Amber's a Christian counselor. She's a friend. She's a colleague. She's even a patient of our practice. Uh, and it's been a joy to get to know her and, and to see her help people in so many different ways. And now we have an opportunity to sit down and talk about this important topic, perinatal mood disorders. Now, when it comes to mental health, especially during the postpartum period, there can be a huge reluctance on women uh, to pursue treatment. There's the, there's the fear of being judged. Uh, there's the stigma that can go along with any kind of mental health. Uh, and maybe they feel like they just can't get out, that they're isolated. But that's actually part of the disease, as we'll talk a lot more about. Mental health is crucial for a good postpartum bonding between baby and mother and mother and husband. So Amber's going to help us with this tough topic and teach us a lot more about perinatal mood disorders. We're going to talk about um, the key components in approaching this problem and give some really practical next steps and resources to share. So get comfortable as we get to know more about perinatal mood disorders and anxiety with counselor Amber Todd. We'll be right back with all things women's health. Welcome back to All Things Women's Health. Joining me for this edition, as I said earlier, to talk about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is my guest, Amber Todd, Christian counselor, mother of four, teacher, wife, all kinds of things. Uh, and Amber's approach to counseling is both holistic and it's faith-based, as she considers multiple factors in her approach to counseling and helping uh, women with all kinds of mental and emotional health-related problems. With a background in crisis advocacy and response, uh, victim advocacy, and higher education, Amber brings a wealth of knowledge to this discussion and to our patients at the Fertility and Midwifery Care Center. She's currently offering support to many women and to couples uh, who are struggling with all kinds of, of challenges um, through support groups, through one-on-one -on -one counseling, uh, through a variety of ways that she can reach out uh, and touch people. She's been offering counseling services in our practice since last April, and we're thrilled to be collaborating with her. Amber, welcome back to All Things Women's Health. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. Yeah, this is an important topic and one that can actually be really sensitive uh, as well. Is there anything that you know you need to lay out for us before we really get into the meat of the topic? Yeah, I think it's really important just for our listeners to know that as we talk about these things, that it can stir up some personal struggles. Um, maybe there's the thought that you can relate or identify to the things that we name today. And sometimes we call that triggering mm -hmm. in the counseling world. So we just want to acknowledge up front that one in five women and one in 10 men struggle with some type of perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. And so as you feel um, this stirring up our response, we want to give you those tools and resources and hang with us until the end because we'll give some practical next steps. Yeah, that's a great point. This episode is really kind of a 10,000 foot view of mood disorders and the perinatal period. Uh, in subsequent episodes, it's our intent to talk about each of them in more detail and to bring a few patients on that have struggled uh, and survived with, with the various specific disorders. But this is a broad look uh, at a really big topic. Well, you know, in medicine, we love our language and we seem to love to make it as complicated as possible. Um, so let's start off with a little bit of language. Um, let's work on the terms postpartum, postpartum depression, uh, and what those exactly mean. 
I think typically when we think of uh, mood disorders for women who are in the postpartum period, people just use that term, even just postpartum, like I had postpartum or postpartum depression. But today we're really using that term perinatal mood and anxiety disorders because it is all-encompassing. And postpartum depression is just one aspect of that. And it's not only in the postpartum period that we're talking about, we also need to talk about the period of pregnancy, the prenatal period. So when we say perinatal, we're talking about both pregnancy and postpartum period and far encompassing beyond just depression, but also anxiety and OCD. Yeah, actually, and I'll bet most listeners have never really thought, especially about obsessive compulsive tendencies Mm -hmm. and anxiety. They just think about postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. But it always strikes me as odd. I'll hear a patient say, oh, I struggled with postpartum after my last baby. And I'll think, what, was it just tough? You didn't get enough sleep? What do you mean you struggled with postpartum? But they mean a postpartum mood disorder. It's just an unusual way to describe it. Right. It can feel like when you say you struggle, like, what does that mean, right? We all have our challenges, but it can be all-encompassing. We really want to put language to that so that women can identify what's exactly happening for them. Give our listeners a sense of how common uh, is this is this broad topic of perinatal mood and anxiety disorders? So you'll hear two different statistics, either one in five or one in seven women. And the difference is typically in pregnancy or within the first three months of postpartum, we will see one in, one in, in seven women with a perinatal mood or anxiety disorder. If we follow them all the way through the first year of baby, one in five. Mm-hmm. And so that's why a lot of women go undiagnosed is because we may not pick it up right away in the first six weeks, which is typically the last time we see them unless they're reaching out. But within three months, six months, eight months, we might see it show up. And so it's one in five women and actually also important to identify one in in ten men. Mm. And so dad is an important part of this. Now, how common would it be for the, the husband to be struggling and the wife not? Do they go together or could they be independent findings? It, if a, if the wife is struggling, the husband has a higher risk mm, sure. of also struggling, but absolutely a husband can struggle without the wife struggling right. for many different reasons. You know, I always struggle, pun intended, with um, delineating what's just funny postpartum maybe blues that people would say, you look at the baby and start crying, uh, or you see a dog food commercial and you cry. Where does that stop and an actual mood disorder start? So I think it's important to recognize all of the changes, the physiological changes, the psychological changes that happen anytime a woman gives birth. And so we're looking at fluctuations in the hormones. Mm-hmm. We're looking at a complete change of lifestyle, a complete change of identity. And so I think what you're talking about, it's very common. I think up to 80% of women experience mm-hmm. postpartum blues, mm-hmm. which typically will show within the first two days and, and last up to two weeks. Now that might be the what we typically think of as the easily crying, uh, being more emotional, um, but after two weeks, you're feeling more normal. You're mm-hmm. back to it. And if it goes longer than that, then we're talking about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, the definition's important. I can remember coming home um, a couple of days after going back to work with our first child, uh, and my wife would love me sharing the story, I'm sure, but she was sitting on the couch in our den and um, clinics were distributed in little wads in a semicircle <laughs> all around the floor where she'd been sitting there watching a movie, bawling her eyes out. And I thought, this can't be good. You know, what's wrong with you? And she said, I'm fine. It was just a great movie. I thought, I've never seen that in my life. Right. Um, but that's very common, isn't it? It is common. And, and typically, women who aren't struggling the full extent of, the, of a disorder can, can regulate. After they get a nap, they get a good meal, they have support, they're able to overcome. Hmm. You mentioned uh, some of the sort of physiologic things that happen right after birth. It's probably important to point out progesterone, testosterone, all kinds of hormones do all kinds of crazy things the moment the placenta comes out. Uh, it starts really a, a hormone storm. And when you combine that with, with sleep deprivation from having a newborn to body image challenges because things are changing pretty rapidly, uh, a part of the body uh, that used to be important from, a, from an attractive intimacy standpoint becomes a feeding mechanism that's just weird. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. It's no wonder that it's ripe you know, for mental uh, challenges, isn't it? Right. 
Absolutely. Well, let's talk about factors that might contribute to men and women being more vulnerable to these kinds of problems. Yeah, I think in general, we talk about mental health. So if you think about depression, anxiety, OCD, these are all terms that we've heard of. And if we put perinatal in front of it, it's really no different other than you're experiencing it within this pregnancy and postpartum time period. And so we're talking about, you know, going through all these changes, as, as we mentioned, transitioning into life with a newborn, your healing from birth, um, your expectations have changed. If it's your first child, mm. your marriage is changing, <laughs> your needs in your relationship are changing. Um, often it can feel really lonely. Mm. I think a lot of women uh, spend so much time preparing for birth and they go to all the childbirth classes and they get the nursery ready and they get their you know baby registry list, but no one really talks about postpartum. No one really talks about what it's like when you bring baby home and it's just you. And I remember with our first, uh, when I was bringing her home from the hospital, Nate was pushing me in the wheelchair and we were just about to get out of the hospital door and I threw my hands to the side <laughs> like, wait, like, do we have everything we need? Like, I felt a sense of panic. Like, I had had all the support from the nurses the last two days and this was all on me. And so that feeling of overwhelm can propel some of the symptoms to show. Yeah, I mean, everyone jokes about how tough it is in the postpartum period. It's not a joke, it's really hard. But to your point, the preparation generally just isn't, it isn't there. Um, but I, I try to remember in my practice, anyone that struggles with any of those mood disorders before pregnancy, maybe they've been on medication and they're fine. And they're in pregnancy, maybe they continued that medication and they're fine. I always think of them as really being a setup uh, for postpartum yeah. mood challenges. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the number one challenges that I see women who have been on medication, or let's say you're currently on medication for depression or anxiety, mm. and then all of a sudden you find that you're pregnant. Immediately there's this panic of, I don't want anything in my body because I'm now, meds, yeah. I will stop these meds and I can overcome. But it is so important to have support from your OB or a psychiatrist or your primary practitioner to mm. walk you through a plan. Um, often you don't have to just go off of everything. You definitely need a plan and you need guidance because those women we see relapse and typically 80% end up going back on medication within pregnancy oh. anyways right. because then you're talking about the struggles of mental health within the context of pregnancy and caring for a baby, yeah. and that has to be treated. And I think moms are right, rightly concerned, well, I'm taking this medication. I can't really look up in a book and it says, perfectly safe in pregnancy, because no book will say that about anything, maybe Tylenol. Um, and so they're thinking, well, I don't want to harm my child, which is rational and, and good. But I try to always remind moms, it isn't good for your child for you to be clinically depressed through the pregnancy and especially in that postpartum period. So it's about balancing risks and challenges. And so maybe from your perspective, could you affirm that there are safe medication options for a woman who's sure. pregnant? How would she know what's safe? Oh, absolutely. Well, to your point, I wouldn't stop anything immediately. Some mood medications can't be stopped immediately. They have to be tapered off. So I would never just stop a medication. It's a conversation that we need to have. But in general, the more famous, you might say, uh, depression medications, we continue in pregnancy and in breastfeeding postpartum, um, not plugging any particular brand, but just the ones that come to mind that are some of the oldest and most well-known, Prozac, Zoloft, Lexapro, Celexa. Again, I'm not advertising for those medications, but those are the trade names of medications that really through the decades, we in the, in the OBGYN and the pediatric world have really gotten comfortable with. Um, so in, unless you're on, you know, a very specific medication that... Um, uh, some of the uh, bipolar disorders and things like that that we have to stop, there's really not a great deal of concern. Uh, but again, the blanket advice, don't stop taking anything until we've had a chance to go through that uh, and have a conversation. Um, what are, in your, you know, in your experience, what are some of the biggest myths about postpartum depression and mood disorders that we have to tackle? I would say that people believing that it's just in postpartum and it's just depression. Mm -hmm. So they're only thinking about, am I crying a lot? Am I really sad? Okay, do I, do I love my baby? Mm -hmm. And so those assumptions really leave out a wide range of ways that women struggle. Mom rage, intense anger, irritability, 
um, sort of checking out, not feeling, um, feeling so overwhelmed that they're not able to be present. OCD tendencies, mm. especially if you struggled with OCD previously, women who are, and that can be checking, counting, checking on baby multiple times throughout the night so much that you can't rest. Mm. And I think that realization that the stigma that we see in media as well, you know, you think of extreme cases like psychosis, which is really one to two in a thousand. Mm. So we're talking about much less common, but it does happen in extreme cases like Andrea Yates that was all over the news. Right. You know, people think of that, well, I'm not that bad. I'm right. not that extreme. So they sort of normalize the struggle and they're missing out on all the support they could receive because of the misunderstanding. So that's a great myth busting there. It's not just depression. So just because you're not depressed doesn't mean you don't have a perinatal mood disorder. Can you think of some other common uh, inaccuracies that people think? Anxiety, I think, is very common, right. and especially around issues involving the baby. You know, right now, a lot of women are feeling anxiety around breastfeeding, especially if they were typically struggling because of the formula shortage. Mm, sure. I'm seeing a spike in that. And so this feeling of like the baby's not getting enough and sort of obsessing over it or even feeling like they want to weigh the baby every time. Right. Or moms who put baby down and they are so anxious they can't nap. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I know when if, if anxiety is an issue, when you put baby down, can you sleep? And typically women who have high anxiety cannot because they're so wound. Yeah, so anxiety, uh, obsessive tendencies, and depression, um, or some combination really of all of those. Mm -hmm. But just because you're not depressed and whatever you think depressed is, doesn't mean that you don't have a disorder. I, I've often found through the years that sometimes I'm asking the, the woman when I really should be asking your spouse, have you seen that in your practice where the spouse is picking up on these things, maybe to a greater degree than, than the woman herself is? Right. And often the spouse will say, she just doesn't seem like herself. He just doesn't seem like himself. Mm -hmm. Like, it's sort of all the things we do to put in place to support. They just can't quite overcome. And that's when they need support. Yeah, I would add maybe to the myth busting, and you alluded to it earlier with the one in 10 statistic that men don't get mood disorders in the postpartum period. Mm -hmm. um, it's a strange time for men, and a different strange than it is for their spouses. But the sense of isolation, mm -hmm. the sense of life as I knew it yesterday is over, mm -hmm. and they've just spent 40-ish weeks planning, planning, planning for this big thing. Right. So life as they knew it really has been replaced by a, a life of planning, now the planning phase is over. You have this baby. Everything seems like it just changed overnight. Um, and I, I've talked to a lot of husbands who will become sort of hyper-focused on work to have something to focus on. Mm -hmm. um, and it's tough, I think, especially as a new dad, to feel like you have any relevant role at all. Um, if, if the woman's breastfeeding, you feel like, well, well, I can't even be helpful there. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could be in charge of transportation to and from the breast. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there's it, it can feel very isolating, um, and you can feel as though you have nothing to contribute. And I think generally, men, we don't like that feeling of not having anything to contribute. Right. We, we need to have a task that we can do. And often men, because they want to fix, <laughs> if they see their wife struggling, and they don't know what to do. They can't take over the breastfeeding, or uh -huh. maybe she's even having a hard time letting go of control because we also see that show up with the OCD, that she has to be the one. Like, you didn't change the diaper right, or right. you didn't, the bottle isn't exactly the right temperature. And so he, everything he tries, he can be shut down if she's struggling with anxiety and OCD. Oh, that's a good point. She could actually make his feelings of isolation worse. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think it is about us humans that, that makes us so reluctant or hesitant to reach out for help with mental health in general, but especially in this special perinatal period? I think the stigma mm. in general around even the term mental health, it can feel like, well, do I need help with my mental health? Like I've sort of done something to fail and therefore now I need help. And that's really my heart in having this conversation is that I want to normalize it mm -hmm. and I want to take the shame and stigma away to say this is very common and there's resources and support available and bringing it to the light is the number one step because so many people feel shame and so therefore it's yeah. happening in the walls of their own home and things are falling apart but then I often hear people say but my mom had no idea or I never told my sister <laughs> or I never brought up with my friends because I either thought it was normal or I was just too embarrassed that I wasn't bonding with baby or I just couldn't quite figure things out at home and so that shame keeps them isolated. Yeah I remember a specific patient telling me once 
that she felt like her baby didn't love her and she was a terrible mother. And if she told anybody, her husband, her mother, anybody, that would just validate those feelings and she'd be a colossal failure. And when, you know, listeners hearing us say this, it's almost comical. You think, well, how could anybody think that? It's very real. I, for one, think our statistics are probably off and it's actually much more than one in five because those are the ones that we learn about. Uh, We don't get to count in the statistics all of those people who just suffered in silence, and somehow they got through it, but their life may have just been devastated by it. And they suffer in silence believing that it will get better. Mm -hmm. Like, I will just magically one day this will go away. And I've had women come forward after even 10 months of having suicidal thoughts and finally realizing, oh, that's not normal. That won't just go away. My brain needs support, and I need to reach out for help. And time just doesn't doesn't solve the problem, right. does it? Not always. That's scary. It feels like, uh, and I'm not talking about current events in the news necessarily, but it feels like in my practice, I see more and more anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if we're talking about it and we have a better language to describe it, but it feels like overall anxiety is going up. Do you see that? And do you see it showing up in the postpartum period in, in different ways? Yeah, absolutely. I think just through the pandemic, there was a lot more fear around health Mm. and being extra cautious, especially having a newborn. I delivered my youngest at the end of 2020. And so I remember even myself feeling some of that anxiety because hospital policies were changing and we were just dealing a lot with a lot of curveballs. And so I think just all that has come with our culture that has changed because of that. Again, I mentioned the formula shortage has created a lot of anxiety. And now with our economy, money is tight. Sure. And so people are feeling that financial stress. Maybe they've been through you know, job changes. And anxiety is often co-occurring with many other disorders. We often see the depression and anxiety or OCD and anxiety. Right. So I think it's a really common fear. The three common fears being dying, going crazy, or losing control. <laughs> so that anxiety is tied to all of that. Wow. Do you, do you feel like it is more common? And do you feel like it presents any differently in the postpartum period than it does outside of the postpartum period. It definitely is more common, and there are a lot of similarities for how anxiety presents. Again, if you are a typically anxious person Mm. or have a history of anxiety, we're not surprised when you're anxious bringing in a vulnerable newborn baby. The stakes are that much higher. Because when we talk about maternal mental health, everything pins from that. If mom's not doing well, how is she able to support baby? Mm -hmm. If mom is unraveling, what's happening inside the home? And so it's so important that we address this and bring it to the light. And anxiety, I think, is the tip of the iceberg. You know, I mean, I can't prove it, but anecdotally, I think families are more spread out than they were a generation ago. It's very common now for a young man and a young woman to have their first baby and to not be around parents and aunts and uncles and the village, you know, that to support them. So the isolation can be worse and I think that leads to anxiety. I think about walking into the exam room uh, at a six-week postpartum visit and just sort of looking at the woman's face, and you can tell this isn't going well. Right. you know. And her husband is often there with her, and he looks just as worried because he thinks, this is not what we signed up for. Right. Somebody's got to help us. But they don't, they don't know how to ask because they don't know that something is actually wrong. Right, and because they don't know who to ask, and that speaks to maybe sometimes a depth a lack of depth of relationships. Like who would you ask if you were falling apart in the middle of the night? Or who would you call to show you how to use the breast pump or how to breastfeed if you're struggling? Or who would you ask questions for if you're too embarrassed about healing from a tear? You know, those type of questions you can just hold in because you don't have your tribe around you and we don't have that multi-generational support. Yeah, that's pretty scary given that that it's common. Um, You know, in, in our own family, we've experienced uh, a family member with postpartum depression that really showed itself, I think, as more anxiety than not. And uh, I think this person would say a big part of what got her through it was what some would call sort of wraparound care. Everybody in the family just wrapped around her, stayed with her, helped with everything from, you know, dishes to diapers to, to getting medication. But a lot of people just don't have that today. I can't imagine trying to go through that without a strong family support. Right. Which is why it's so important to be mindful of that, to prepare for mm-hmm. postpartum. So, 
even if you're in between babies and listening and maybe you struggle with postpartum previously, if someone doesn't feel like they have close, strong relationships or a support system, now is the time to invest in that. Yeah. Now is the time to build relationships with your neighbor. We need proximity people. Mm. I, I had a day, my lowest point in postpartum with my second. I had terrible anxiety. I remember walking across the street to my neighbor. I had my toddler was crying. I was in my pajamas. My hair was messy. The baby's crying. And she didn't even ask any questions. She opened the door and she took my toddler and said, we'll keep her for dinner. And I just started crying like, thank you so much. Wow. Because I didn't even know what I needed, but because I had a relationship with her, she was able to jump in and support me in that way. What a simple yet profound gesture mm-hmm. uh, for someone to do. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like you're you're making the point, really everyone, just like you're planning um, when you're going to go back to work or if you're going to go back to work, you might be doing meal planning for the postpartum period. It, during pregnancy, you should really be getting ready and have a plan for mood disorders. I mean, if 20 plus percent of, of women are going to get this, um, that seems like it would be a smart strategy, doesn't it? Absolutely. And just as important as a birth plan is a postpartum plan. Uh-huh. And for me, it's not even about just avoiding mood disorders, but I want you to thrive mm. in postpartum. Not just survive. Not just survive. Let's enjoy baby. Like the newborn time is so sacred. It's just a special gift from God that you won't ever get back. And if we can do things to prepare for your support system, practical help around the house, relationships, let's talk about that. And at the end of the episode, I'll mention some resources for mm. postpartum planning because it is very important. Let's go back for a minute to anxiety. And you mentioned anxious, anxiousness, anxiety. What is a, uh, a theoretical patient, what is she going to say to you when you first start talking to her that makes you realize this is postpartum anxiety? So I often hear, I'm worried he's not getting enough milk, or they're scared that baby's going to stop breathing at night, so they're checking. going in and checking uh-huh. you know, every five seconds, or um, they are worried that the sleep sack wasn't too tight. It's like that, that, it's just constant worry. It's constant worry that no matter what you're doing, it's not enough, or no matter what you do, something bad's going to happen to baby. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like a constant inner restlessness. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, how it shows up. Sort of a sense of impending doom. Mm -hmm. Something bad is about to happen. Which, when we get those feelings, our natural protective response is to flood ourselves with adrenaline and get ready to fight or run. Uh, And that's fine in the moment when you need to fight or run. But to, to live that way constantly is horrible. I mean, that's a torture. And they're exhausted. So these women often then may experience chronic insomnia because they can't sleep when baby sleeps. They're up multiple times anyways breastfeeding. And then if they're up every two to three hours breastfeeding, but then they can never fall asleep in between, then you start talking about symptoms of just insomnia, uh, let alone. Yeah, and sleep deprivation works as a form of torture because it can can make you crazy. I mean, uh, you would do anything to get sleep. And then if you can't get sleep, that just builds on itself. And then you get, I have women who struggle with that and it starts to become nighttime and their anxiety just builds closer and closer to bedtime because they know husband and maybe other children are sleeping and they can't. And, and, and that's when I feel like mentally they start to spiral. Mm-hmm. How do you see a connection between um, typical breastfeeding problems and postpartum mood disorders? I think that's definitely connected. I mean, especially women who desire that. I think a lot of women desire to be successful with breastfeeding, and it's something that you can't really practice Mm. before you have a baby. And so I know for me, there can be a lot of insecurity. I I was in Pennsylvania with our first baby, and I remember gave birth in the middle of the night. It wasn't going well right away. They gave Mm. me a nipple shield, and it was sort of like, I'm new to all this, and I'm trying (laughs) to figure out, and I just sort of felt like I didn't have the support. And so it was weeks for me of working through pain and frustration and fear and tears and anger because it wasn't going how I thought it would. And thankfully for me, it cleared up, but there's women who deal with bleeding nipples and ongoing issues for months and they're so discouraged. Yeah. And it's easy, I guess, to fall really down that hole of despair and judgment because now breastfeeding is the norm. You know, I don't remember the last time I asked a patient if she was breastfeeding and she said, no, it's just very uncommon. Which I think sets you up to feel like a failure if you have any trouble. I mean, after all, if I can't feed my baby, then what good am I? Uh, and then it spirals, I'm sure. And then anxiety affects your milk supply. Oh, so then you're right. anxious about being anxious because you don't want it to affect your milk. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, and then it, it plays out to a sense of um, identity and value. Yeah. And 
yeah, that's my job. That's my one job is to feed this baby, and I can't do it. I must not be a good wife, mother, you know, all of those things. Uh, it always uh, catches my attention. I'll, I'll see maybe a mom the first day after birth, maybe in the hospital, and um, I'll say just reflexively or habitually, how's breastfeeding going? And she'll say, oh, we're struggling. And I think, you know, your milk doesn't come in for three days. Yeah. How could you struggle on day one? It's almost impossible to struggle on day right. one because you have you really have nothing to do. Right. Uh, I mean, the baby needs to latch a little, and I think rationally people can accept that, but not if the mood and the anxiety is playing games with your ability to process. Right, and you just need people around you who know that, yeah. and you need to seek out help, whether it's yeah. with a lactation consultant, postpartum doula, and stick in it. Sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes yeah. months to get into your rhythm, and it's okay to ask for help. Yeah, I've heard it said that. Um, breastfeeding in itself is not natural, that it has to be taught. Mm -hmm. uh, and for generations and generations, women have taught women how to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. But now with isolated living and with families being separated, you may not have that matriarchal figure in your life mm -hmm. who had a great breastfeeding experience that can say, nope, you're doing it wrong, let me help you. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would just lead to more isolation, I'm sure. Right. So we talked a little bit about actual anxiety. What about actual depression? I think people hear that word and they, they think different things. But what are actually the symptoms of postpartum depression? Mm -hmm. So I would say we're looking at sadness, crying, appetite changes, mm -hmm. uh, maybe having intense irritability or anger. Again, these things that are not clearing up after all your human basic needs are met. Hopelessness, helplessness, guilt, shame, maybe a lack of bonding with baby, just not feeling that connection, an inability for self-care. So women who just, they can't, I've heard a woman told me, tell me last week, I just couldn't even pick the spoon up to put it in my mouth. Yeah. Like the food was in front of me and I couldn't even feed myself. And that's not fatigue, that's not muscle weakness. Right. That's an internal inability to just do, isn't right. it? Right. Which I think, you know, Hollywood, we wouldn't think that's depression. Depression is, I guess, I, you know, I hate myself or I hate life or life is no good. It's not worth living. But it's much more vast and varied than that. Yeah. And I do want to acknowledge that suicidal thoughts are a symptom of depression. Yeah. Sometimes it's not always this strong thought of I want to go kill myself. Mm -hmm. Maybe someone thinks oh, I'd be better off if I wasn't here, or baby would be better off. It's just, it can be a fleeting thought. Yeah, you mentioned um, postpartum psychosis, which mm -hmm. is the ultimate complication of mm -hmm. postpartum mood disorders. But mm -hmm. let's try to help listeners sort of draw a line that where does postpartum blues stop, postpartum mm -hmm. depression start, and then where does postpartum psychosis start? Right, so I think if we look at the timeline, so between once baby's born, Two days to two weeks is what we call postpartum blues. So maybe more excessive crying, mm -hmm. more emotional ups and downs. Sure. Um, sometimes you might just need extra practical support. We have the pro progesterone protocol, which yeah. we can talk about. Um, but then if it goes after two weeks and you're experiencing depression symptoms or anxiety symptoms, then we're talking more about a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Yeah. Um, the extreme end of that in any of that time frame would be psychosis. Yeah which at that point, and unfortunately we've had some cases recently of that, even though it's rare, yeah. it's she's totally out of it. She's not trusting her husband with the baby. Yeah. She thinks everyone's out to get her. She's not having any rational thoughts. She's not able to care for herself or other children. Yeah, and that's, that's a slippery slope to the world would be better off without me. Right. The world might be better off without my baby. Right. Crazy things like that. Right. When they inter interviewed Andrea Yates after that whole situation happened, with her, her children, unfortunately, she couldn't even believe the thoughts that she had when mm. she was in psychosis. When they talked to her when she was in her right mind, it was like she couldn't even comprehend what happened. Yeah. She, in essence, psychosis makes you so out of it that nothing is rational. It's a detachment of reality. Exactly. So left is not left and right is not right. It's a complete detachment, which is not so-called simple depression. It's right. much more complex than that. Right. Uh, and not subtle, but, but very scary. So we've talked about more anxiety. We've talked about depressive symptoms. You touched a little bit on obsessive compulsive disorder, but let's talk more about those symptoms and, and what to look for. 
So I would say OCD would show up in obsessive cleaning, like、mm-hmm. the second someone comes over and they touch your doorknob, you just can't wait till they leave so you can wipe it down. <laughs>、um, you're checking how many diapers are there,、um, counting, ordering. Germs and cleanliness again is a common one,、That's、especially common. around the last two years.、Mm-hmm. So, and again, as moms, every I want to say every <laughs> mom has the right to ask people to wash their hands、right. and use sanitizer. That doesn't like, mean you have OCD. That doesn't mean you have OCD. <laughs> But if it's like completely an obsession, like you get anxiety and you cringe inside if、yeah. someone doesn't do that, or you can't wait till they leave your home. That can that's bordering on that something can, that's pathological. Right.、Yeah. Exactly. Can you think of Um, examples, you know, when a patient again, when you see a patient, what is she going to tell you that makes you think this is clearly OCD? So I'm even thinking of re- again relationship with your spouse. If every time he changes the diaper, you go in and you do it a little differently, or every、mm. time he puts the clothes away, you go in and arrange it. You、uh-huh. know, those things can be subtle, but over time, think of the mental and emotional energy that's exerted if、yeah. you're correcting any help that you get. Right, I, I tend to think, and I don't know if it's completely accurate from a mental health standpoint, but I tend to think if it starts bothering you, but you have to do it, but you don't like that you do it, right? Then that's that's the line probably that crosses into abnormal. If you just enjoy having the, the neatest folded laundry pile in the country,、right. that may just be your hobby. But if you can't relax, if you if you didn't do it yourself, and you have to redo it, as you mentioned, I think that's a pretty good hint, isn't it? That Maybe you've crossed a line into a problem area. Yeah, and that's a good point. I mean, obviously, we all have our things that we like to be particular, but <laughs>、right. is it ruling you, and is it something that's causing distress? Yeah. Well, let's move on to another area that you have a lot of expertise in, and that's that's trauma. So、uh, I see patients commonly that have had、um, a, a traumatic birth, you might say, and and they've really developed sort of a, a post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD type. Um, symptom complex afterwards.、Um, how does PTSD show up after a traumatic birth? I think any time we're talking about trauma, and I I saw this through my experience as a victim advocate. You know, we're talking about something that felt totally out of my control.、Mm-hmm. That either I couldn't do anything, or I was put in a situation where I couldn't use my voice, or I didn't have a say to what happened to me.、Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about PTSD. It could be a vaginal birth. It could be a C-section. It could be that it doesn't have to be traumatic, right? In the, in the sense that bones were broken or something like right. that. Right. And as an OB, you may look at that birth and think, "Well, that was normal.、Yeah. Some of the normal tearing or、yeah. a typical signs of C-section happened." But as women who dream about our birth for so long, and we have a certain way that we want it to be,、yeah. when you experience a birth that is anything different than what you had hoped, there's a risk for some type of emotional or physical trauma. To result from that, yeah, I hear a phrase used a lot in in the birth community. Well, we just want a healthy mom and baby.、Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you know sort of is the the least possible standard. But I always think when I hear that, what you're really communicating is all of that other stuff you're feeling doesn't matter、uh, because、right. your baby's fine. So、right. all of those other things are they're not real feelings. You don't deserve to have those feelings. Yeah, there's actually an excellent article by Dr. Cheryl Beck, and she wrote this. Um, article about birth trauma, and it's called "In the Eyes of the Beholder."、Mm. And I think that idea that the woman or or man, if it's their their birth, whatever they experience, so it could even be you're rushing to a C-section and someone forgets to get dad,、right. you know, and hurt him knowing not knowing for that period of time if、yeah. she's okay and what's happening.、Um, it could be, you know, the three common feelings that she found in this research is that either they perceive the OB. That you didn't care,、right. that there, there was poor communication, or that they felt powerless,、mm-hmm. or that did the choice you made as an OB justify the means to the end?、Mm. Like, did you make the best choice? So she's processing that in her perspective with what she knows.、Right. I think of a friend of mine who was also a patient who developed really pretty. Significant PTSD to the point that she couldn't even use the road in front of the hospital. That would trigger her anxiety and feelings.、Um, but she ended up having a C-section, and she'll describe laying on the table while they're getting ready to start the C-section, cold and naked, as vulnerable as an adult could ever feel, 
and then getting the shakes from the anesthesia, from the spinal, the epidural, and just lying there cold, unclothed, and shaking. And she couldn't stop thinking about that. It, mm-hmm. it really just sort of took over her thoughts. Uh, and they really struggled you know, to get through that with another pregnancy. Right. And I think when you have phrases like, oh, healthy mom, healthy baby, or people, yeah. you, s- you start to talk with friends about what happened, and, and they respond like, oh, well, at least the baby's healthy. Yeah. That's minimizing their invalidating, experience. Invalidating, minimizing. It is invalidating yeah. it. And I think for the person who goes through that, both mommy and dad, they mm. need a safe place to process. Um, and they need to be heard. They need to feel like they're able to ask questions. And, and I even encourage them sometimes that means a follow-up conversation or meeting mm. with the OB or midwife if they just want to debrief what happened. And I know you've done that before. Some data. I mean, because it could be cloudy and you could be misremembering right. some of the details. Um, walk listeners through a little bit what, how you're going to help someone that's struggling with PTSD. What does that look like? Again, I think a safe place to talk through what happened. And even when I'm working with someone who's been through trauma, it's not, okay, sit down, now let's talk about all the trauma. Trauma is compounded. And so often we're talking about how is this showing up in your life now? And we're slowly peeling back the layers of the onion. And eventually one day they'll just start telling their story and we'll Mm kind of start to relive what happened. And also some women don't ever want to talk about the exact details. And I'm a big proponent that you don't have to relive your trauma to heal Mm -hmm. from it. But we do need to be trauma-informed as therapists and recognizing how trauma affects the brain and that um, processing verbally isn't the only piece to the healing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've seen several patients who uh, have had a traumatic birth. Now they're pregnant again. And they don't bring it up, uh, maybe until the very end of pregnancy, that, you know, that they pushed forever or that they had to have a C-section or maybe the baby's shoulder was stuck or the baby was injured or anything. Uh, As we said, it's in the eyes of the beholder. And it raises its head when it's time to push this baby out. Mm -hmm. And we call it sort of anti-pushing. She's pushing, she's trying, but the baby's not coming out. It's almost as though she's holding it in, Mm -hmm. literally and emotionally holding it in. And that's not the time to be working through these issues. Uh, We would much rather find out that you had a birth trauma and that you're worried about it early, early in the pregnancy, presumably even before you were pregnant again, so they could see someone like you. Um, But it can really get in the way with the next birth. Right. And not only birth trauma, but I also want to mention that a history of sexual abuse really impacts a woman's experience in birth. Mm -hmm. And one of three women have experienced some type of sexual abuse. So it's very common. One in three. One in three. I would not have guessed that high. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing that just like you're seeing it in the birth room. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was something that happened when she was younger. Maybe she's never even told her husband. Maybe it's something that she's just totally repressed. And then all of a sudden, it's time to give birth. And mm. birth is the most vulnerable position right. you can be in in every sense of the word. You literally have to allow your body to open to bring forth life. And if you have that trauma response in your body, which, and again, the body keeps the score. There's a book <laughs> called that that I love. And it's just literally your body holding in baby trying. It's a physiological response to protect yeah. yourself. And so as I work through cli- with clients who've had a history of some type of sexual assault, we're really talking through not only the healing, but how can we prepare to make the birth room a safe place? Mm. How can we communicate with the midwife and OB about your experience? So for example, telling them you don't want to be touched unexpectedly, or you prefer to have certain clothes on during the birth, or you need all the lights up really high, you don't want dim lights. Sure. Like whatever's triggering for you, we need to communicate that to the provider. Yeah, if we know in advance, we can hopefully do a great job of planning a strategy that's not going to trigger those feelings to try to get that birth. And then continuing into this topic, that woman is the perfect setup for a postpartum mood disorder Mm -hmm. because that birth in some ways will likely be traumatic. If we didn't do a good job at at dealing with the trauma history, now she's going to have two traumatic experiences. I I think that's just begging for postpartum depression and mood issues. Right, right. Uh, That's that's frightening, isn't it? Just thinking about it. <laughs> it is. And it's, and again, that much more important if you've never processed that, if someone's listening has never processed mm. that, to seek out support now. Well, you mentioned earlier uh, some treatment things. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. I tend to think of, in my toolbox for uh, perinatal mood issues, I tend to think about um, depression, anxiety type medications. I tend to think about hormonal types of things. 
and then I think about you. <laughs> so really kind of the trifecta there, a three-legged stool. Um, but, but walk through what you see uh, working, not working. How often do you see people that are responding to one, not responding to another? What's that look like for you? Right. I think it's – I'm thankful that we have so many tools in our belt, I mean, especially at our office. Um, you know, the typical first line of defense isn't always an antidepressant. You yeah. know, a lot of women don't even know about the progesterone protocol that we have. Mm. I didn't know about it oh, with sure. my with my second um, pregnancy. And basically realizing that a lot of women f- feel uncomfortable with medication, and that's okay. There are other options. Yeah. And so, but, but it's important to point out, progesterone plummets right. uh, often. It shouldn't, but it often does. If it's been low during the pregnancy, it's not a surprise that it's going to be low after. Uh, and we follow the, the Creighton protocol for progesterone replacement uh, with some combination maybe of a, of a pill of bioidentical progesterone, maybe an injection every other day. And there's a couple of studies that looked at women who started a depression medication and started the progesterone, and the progesterone group got better faster mm-hmm. and never needed the medication. Right. Um, but, yeah, you have to know about that, and your provider's got to be familiar with it. Um, but, you know, our partner, Dr. Bauer, will talk about testosterone plummeting after depression. And I've certainly seen patients with her that they were better the next day after starting, a, you know, testosterone replacement. Mm-hmm. And we should point out, with the typical or traditional anti-depression medications, it can be three to six weeks before they really kick in and the woman is feeling the effects. That's eternity. Things could really go bad in three to six weeks. Right. So I think if you have risk factors, which we can talk about sort of the screening and awareness, you need to have this conversation Mm. with your OB or midwife and talk about how progesterone might play a role. Um, Obviously, if it is playing a role through pregnancy, but also postpartum, know about the bioidentical hormone replacement. And also, that's why women, some women do placenta encapsul- encapsulation right. because that's also a piece of replenishing those hormones. Um, there are also homeopathic mm-hmm. remedies for women sure. who are more naturally minded. So there's things that we can do physiologically to support you. And then obviously, emotionally, with counseling, mm-hmm. support system, support groups, um, having social connection with other moms. Right. I think all those things are key to wrap around. You know, uh, to, to the wrap around care idea, but you know, to the cynic listening, uh, <laughs> you know, yes, I'm depressed. I'm, I'm struggling with depression. Why do I need to go see Amber and tell her that I'm depressed? I already know that I'm depressed. Why does that help at all? Well, to the cynic, I would say that it is important to have a safe place to process what's happening internally. Mm. And when we don't, when we don't seek out help, we live in isolation and darkness, mm. right? And I think scripture talks about the power of bringing things to the light, yeah. whether that's the with a counselor. The dark hates the light. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so whether it's with a counselor or whether it's with a trusted friend or a priest or a pastor, I think it's important to bring things to the light. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that that idea that no matter how dark a room is, just a tiny little pen light will illuminate the whole room. Mm-hmm. And the darker the room, the less light it takes right. y- you know, to lighten the room. Mm-hmm. And shining a light on these problems, that just drives the dark away. Mm-hmm. That's kind of beautiful imagery if you think about it. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, you talked a little bit about, uh, we would talk about some resources. So let's, let's go through uh, a few resources for listeners that they could, they could call on if they if they're find themselves struggling or if their spouse thinks that they're struggling. So I think, number one, anytime you're in the perinatal period, obviously you're receiving care from an OB or midwife. So mm-hmm. good communication, good planning, there are screening tools available that we can look at your risk factors and your history. So the number one thing is be an advocate for yourself mm-hmm. because sometimes the OB doesn't always see all your right. history and you have a packed schedule and maybe you don't mean to, but you over, right. overlook something. So bring it up. Mm-hmm. If you have a history of any of the things we've mentioned today, Bring it up. Talk about how to prepare. Make a plan. I think getting in with a good therapist is always helpful Mm -hmm. um, just so that you can prepare and have someone lined up that you have a relationship with when the baby comes. Um, And we've mentioned in the first episode about some resources to find. I think, again, asking people for recommendations um, is is helpful, just word of mouth. Um, Also, planning. Postpartum planning is huge. And so that's something that I offer is a postpartum plan template. And I'll walk you through some of the things we've talked about today, the history, how to prepare, questions to debrief with your spouse, and then how to really set yourself up for success to have a 
peaceful postpartum. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of our patients invest a great deal of time and energy on a birth plan, mm -hmm. and then it stops. Yeah. Uh, what about that postpartum plan? What are the next six weeks going to look like? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do about meals and about issues and about challenges if they arise? Mm -hmm. But getting that plan put together, it sounds like a, a smart strategy. Absolutely. Yeah, as I think about postpartum depression, it's, it's frightening how prevalent it is and how it, it, it breeds isolation. Um, and that voice inside you that is saying, uh, you're the only one that has this and you're not going to get better. It's just going to get worse and there's nothing that can be done. That's not the voice of truth. You know, that is the prince of lies. Uh, the, the voice of truth is that still quiet one that says, you know, you're beloved and you need to reach out because if you reach out, uh, you can be helped. Um, but don't listen to that, to that loud voice. The truth never is the most loud one, is it? Right, right. <laughs> it is the gentle whispers, you know, yeah. of God affirming that he's with us. And it's those moments when you're rocking the baby in the middle of the night and you feel at the end of yourself, but you just hear their heartbeat mm -hmm. and you know that he's entrusted this life to you and that he's with you and he will walk you through this. Yeah, I think about uh, a ch the church teaching really around solidarity. We're in this together, that you, you need to be able to let someone help you because others want to help and they're actually helped by their helping uh, and and you have to make yourself vulnerable to ask and allow help. But in so doing, you, you open up possibilities for just endless graces, I think. Right. Um, well, I, I hope that, uh, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to Amber Todd, our expert. Um, and you can find a lot more information. And you can take next steps about finding support for you or, or for a loved one. Visit Amber's uh, website, ambertodd.org. And if you have questions you'd like to ask her, uh, you can reach her virtually at hello at ambertod.org. Um, you can even check out episode one where we talked about counseling in general here uh, on all things women's health. And if you're experiencing symptoms or someone that you care about is experiencing symptoms like we've talked about today, you've got to reach out. You've got to ask for help. That's the first step. If you can just do that, things are going to get better almost uh, immediately. Um, if you'd like to talk to us, we're happy to try to help. You can contact our office at 260-222-7401. So I want to thank you for joining us again on this episode of All Things Women's Health. I hope you'll like and subscribe and share the podcast with friends. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be back with subsequent episodes and talk more specifically and bring patients in to tell their stories about some of their perinatal mood disorders. So we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks again for joining us here on All Things Women's Health. 